Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is SiriusXM Progress, Channel 127. Welcome to Progress After Dark. Good evening to everybody out there on the West Coast driving home in your vehicles. Hello to everybody else in the Middle and the East Coast. Welcome to Tell Me Everything, bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble. I'm John Fugelsang. Here in Manhattan, New York City, Thea, our amazing producer, Thea Harper. She's running this thing out of Brooklyn. Chris Hauselt, our executive producer, is running this thing out of South Carolina. And I want to say hello to all of our evil army of the night listening live. We love you guys. Hello to the Daywalkers, all y'all listening through the magic of Pandora, on demand, on the app, Fugelsang Podcast. We love y'all. You're always allowed to call in, too, or send us your emails. We're thrilled to hear from you. If you listen to the podcast, give us a good uh, review and uh, all that fun stuff. So, as you know, this week marks one year since the Dobbs decision overturned Roe v. Wade and ended 50 years where women in this country had a guaranteed federal right to choose an abortion, a time when women had a federal right to decide that they didn't have to be pregnant if they didn't want to be. And so much has happened in the last year. 14 states have implemented complete abortion bans. Several others are trying to implement bans. At least six have done abortion bans with other limits, like six to 20 weeks after a person's last menstrual period. But at the end of the day, nearly 22 million women of reproductive age, almost one in three, have found themselves living in states where abortion was unavailable or severely restricted. They've been criminalizing it, and they've been finding ways to criminalize abortion care and gender affirming care and any kind of attacks on human body autonomy, as well as attacking Americans' abilities to access necessary health care. In a new USA Today Suffolk University poll, one in four Americans are now saying the state efforts that have followed to make even stricter limits on abortion access have made them more supportive of abortion rights. There is so much to unpack, and I'm so thrilled to have two of the most brilliant people in broadcasting here. I'm a huge fan of each of these women. Amani Gandhi is senior editor of law and policy for Rewire News Group. She covers law and courts and co-hosts the podcast Boom Lawyered. She also began the great Angry Black Lady Chronicles. Jessica Mason Peeklow is senior VP and executive editor for Rewire News Group, and she is the co-host with Amani of the Boom Lawyered podcast. Rewire News Group itself is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization, the only national publication exclusively dedicated to reporting on reproductive and sexual health, rights and justice. It is a great pleasure to welcome Imani and Jessica back to SiriusXM. Thanks for having Uh, us back. Always a pleasure. Thank you both so much. Um, As promised, the only thing I really want to talk about today, a a little bit about Dobbs, but uh, Imani went to uh, Paris to see Beyonce. That's that's going to lead. I'm sorry. You you thought I was kidding before, but you really did it. (laughs) I really did it. I decided I needed to go see her. And so I said, you know, I bought tickets and then I figured, okay, got to get my passport renewed, got to get to Paris, got to figure it out. And it was a lovely show. It was so much fun. Great trip. <laughs> I'm glad. Came back to Sweaty SCOTUS season. And so that's always fun. But, you know, uh, yeah, sweaty, sweaty SCOTUS season, but a few surprises there as well that I want to I want to get to because uh, we actually had some very unexpectedly good news, I think, out of SCOTUS last week. But let's mm-hmm. let's talk about this anniversary. It's hard to believe it's it's really a year. And, and let me begin by asking both of you. Uh, one of the most basic questions, what in the last year since Alito's ruling, what has not surprised you 
What has happened that was exactly what we knew would happen if they ever succeeded in repealing Roe v. Wade? Oh, wow. That's um, excellent. I mean, we knew that the human rights crisis would that we were already existing in thanks to the Texas law that the Supreme Court had previously allowed to take effect. We knew that we that would be exacerbated on the national scale. And we also knew that these attacks on bodily autonomy wouldn't stop with attacks on abortion rights, that they would expand well beyond abortion to gender affirming care attacks on birth control and the very things that we're seeing in state houses now. Uh, Amani, what I miss? Um, that it was never going to be just about states' rights. We oh, were yeah. told that it was about throwing abortion back to the states and just letting the people in the states decide. And then immediately we're talking national abortion bans from the Republicans. So, you know, the whole the whole basis for the lawsuit was a lie. Yeah, completely. And Donald Trump all along was saying it'll go back to the states, it'll go back to the states. And yet no one's found the time to ask Donald Trump about Mifepristone and how, of course, (laughs) Clarence Thomas pretty much bragged they were going to try to take a mile and they've been doing it ever since. I got to say the trigger laws, we all knew to expect that. But Mm -hmm. I've been a bit surprised how many bills we've seen over the last year that completely didn't have any exceptions for rape or incest. I, I... Every time I think I can't be more shocked at how myopic and stupid and reckless the right wing strategy is, they they keep on doing it. I mean, you'd think at least they would know the optics. But I, I, I think the right wing has been shocked at how unpopular this decision has been. I think that's true. And I also, though, think the opposite is true, which is, you know, and and this is a lesson from the Trump administration, which is the uh, anti-choice movement feels empowered to say the quiet parts out loud now. And they never truly supported exceptions in abortion bans. They never truly supported what in the media gets characterized as, quote unquote, compromises around abortion rights and access. But they would say those things because of the optics on it. And I think that they are very much in the dog that caught the car position now where they have uh, a base that wants no exceptions, wants a national ban, wants absolutely, you know, no movement except for the restriction on abortion. And the reality that that is anti-democratic and wildly unpopular. And every time voters have the opportunity to, they slam them in the polls for it. Yeah. Let me ask about what has been surprising to you guys, because I I have to tell you, even I didn't expect to see these these bounty hunter laws that were modeled after Texas, as we've seen them in Idaho and Oklahoma. Oklahoma's were struck down uh, in May, but more or less the state finding ways to let any random Yahoo get involved in restricting women's rights and finding all new ways to harass and even incarcerate women, even if they try to leave the state to seek care elsewhere. That that was something I will admit I didn't see coming. I want to talk to you guys about what has surprised you with the venality of these so-called winners since Dobbs. I think what's surprising is just how much the voters don't like these laws, right? We saw victories in Kansas. We saw, you know, the Wisconsin state Supreme Court race become this huge sort of meme driven contest on TikTok, for example, right? We saw kids dressed up in robes and doing dances. I mean, Jess can tell you about what Madison is like. I don't even know what that main drag on Madison is, but people were partying for Janet Protosowitz, who was like, Who is Janet Protosowitz? Janet P. She became sort of this like touch, this sort of touchstone linchpin for Wisconsin. And now Wisconsin Supreme Court has gone liberal. So I wasn't expecting that. I I honestly wasn't expecting as much, I guess, engagement and fun engagement from Gen Z as we're getting. Right. Even when it comes to people like Olivia Juliana, for example, who raised something like a million dollars off of being bullied by Matt gets the Batman villain. I mean, there's just a real, there's a real groundswell of movement from young folks that I, as a nearing 50 year old person who has been doing this and is tired, I am really glad to see it because, and Jess will talk about this more. I mean, Jess is the one who turned me onto this idea that it's a, there's a real joy in the way that they're organizing, right? They're not, 
Well, I mean, what we used to do, I have friends who work at Planned Parenthood and they would always complain that every meeting would start with, it's not fair, you know? And they would spend the first 20 minutes just kind of complaining about the bills and how unfair they are. And Gen Z is going the opposite direction. They're like, yeah, this is messed up. It's not fair, but we're not gonna dwell on that. We're gonna get on TikTok and make memes. We're gonna bully Matt. We're gonna bully like the internet into making, giving me a million dollars based off the fact that Matt Getz was trying to bully me. We're going to get out there and we're going to vote these people out, which they have done. They voted them out in the midterms. They voted the quote right way, in my estimation, yes. in Kansas and Wisconsin and all these places. So I'm jazzed at the level of engagement that there is right now, frankly. I've been astonished by it. We've been talking for years about how are we going to get Gen Z to show up and vote? How do we get young people to give a shit about democracy now? My God, you're right. Kansas, for God's sakes, Kansas. Gen Z is showing Gen X how to show up and vote. And I mean, Jessica, we're now about to enter our first we're entering our first ever presidential Uh election cycle since Roe v. Wade was overturned. It's really remarkable. I I find two levels. Uh, Number one, how much our conservative friends don't want to talk about their great generational victory, how much they're trying to obscure the language, but also how much the media is really, really shocking me with how much they're pushing the false equivalency game. Oh, but some of them are willing to consider birth control. Oh, some of them are willing to consider a 20 week ban. Suddenly, like anything the Republicans will do prompts our corporate liberal media to say, oh, look, it, it, both sides are, are, are digging in too hard. I, I on the one hand, I've been so enheartened by young people showing up and I've been so enraged by how the media just keeps on playing this narrative game. Absolutely. Did you see Mike Pence's presidential announcement? The man did not actually use the word abortion. And I am used to yelling and screaming about that from Joe Biden. And here is a politician who has built his entire career in the pro-life anti-choice movement, right? He is one of their chosen ones. And in his moment, he couldn't even say the word abortion. I think that tells you a lot about how folks are going to try and find wiggle room in the national media on this and it will be incumbent on the press to call them out on it. Look, nobody actually has to ask Mike Pence about his stance on abortion. We have 20, 30 years of voting records from Mike Pence to know what it is. We, you know, um, the media itself can be informed consumers of the spectacle that the Republicans are about to offer up to them in the form of this you know, nomination cycle. Um, but what will be important is for the media to report accurately on the realities of these proposals. What does it mean to enact a national abortion ban? Actually ask those questions. Don't engage in the circus that will be existing on the margins as far as the RNC is concerned. Yeah, I, I thought it was amazing, to your point, how when Ron DeSantis finally got the precious and signed his six week abortion ban, he did it at 11 p.m. on a Thursday right. night when everyone had gone to bed. And the next day he flew to New Hampshire to do presidential appearances and never mentioned it. The crown yeah. jewel in their kingdom of bullshit. And they're trying to bury it under a bushel. Meanwhile, Jess and I just did a podcast on this. But to sort of further your point is when Ron DeSantis, you know, last month signed that slew of anti-trans bills, you know, the one targeting drag shows and the one, you know, saying that school teachers and administrators don't need to use people's preferred pronouns. He signed that bill at a ceremony. It was a ceremony where he was throwing Sharpies into the crowd. That's how proud he was to be signing these anti-trans bills, because that's how focus the right wing is on this pedophile groomer narrative that they're forming around trans and uh, and LGB people. But when it comes to abortion, which, as you said, has been their crown jewel of bullshit for so long, he signs that in the dead of night. I find that fascinating. And I think what's also fascinating, I think what's really great about the court coming out on the Allen v. Milligan, Alabama voting rights case that they did is that I think that they are hiding in public they're hiding from abortion, knowing that they'll be able to backdoor all their all their bullshit in via voter suppression and via the courts. Right. You don't have to be honest with, with the public about what your strategy is. You don't Correct. need to sign bills in public and have parties and, you know, I don't know, 
keg stands out of you know, fealty <laughs> to Justice Miller High Life. You don't need to do all of that if you're planning on sneaking these bans in by uh, making sure that the people who would otherwise vote against those bans can't vote. And I think that ties in very nicely, well, not nicely, actually terribly, to the increased effort to criminalize abortion and to criminalize people who get abortion, right? Because if you criminalize abortion, if you make helping someone get an abortion a felony, if you make getting an abortion a felony, then what happens in places where felons are restricted from voting in some way? Yes, right? That means that's exactly. more people who are pro-repro, who are pro-reproductive justice, are being prevented from voting due to laws like that prevent people from voting either when they're, when they're incarcerated or for a certain period of time after they're incarcerated. Now, the laws obviously vary from state to state, but I think even the movement we saw in permitting felons to vote is going to be walked back because they got to oh. figure out a way to pass these abortion bans without saying that's what they're doing. That's and it. so I think we're it's, it's getting real shady, real shady. Well, and they've got to be anti-democracy because that's the only way they're going to win. Yep. And they have really figured out in the last 10 years they don't need the majority of voters to necessarily win lots of these states and local elections. But, you know, I'm glad you say criminalize because that's the word I try to use. And I I wish the media would use it as well. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back. Now, these state bans we've seen happen in the last year have criminal penalties for people who perform uh, a termination of a pregnancy, jail time up to 20 years. But like Alabama and Texas, life in prison. Most Mm -hmm. of these state bans have fines from a thousand to one hundred thousand dollars. A civil penalty in Texas, at least one hundred thousand dollars per abortion right now. But they've tried to go after women. They've tried to incarcerate women who terminate pregnancies. And I just want to ask you how you feel right now about that element of it, because I think that they're not going to stop until they begin locking up women. And I think that this is the first time in the pro-life movement's existence they've ever had to ask these questions. Again, I, I fault the media. The media does not ask these politicians, do women who terminate pregnancies deserve jail time? And I would just like to ask the two of you, Are you scared that it's going to expand beyond just trying to lock up providers that we will be seeing women who are citizens? And again, the majority of women who terminate pregnancies are already mothers. Do you think we'll see a drive to actually put more bodies behind bars? I know we will. Uh, This is an active conversation that's happening in the anti-choice movement right now. Um, And uh, there is what used to be the considered the radical wing of that has become mainstream in conservative circles. And so even as it's radicalized more, they're called abortion abolitionists. And they are pressing for uh, outlawing abortion in any and all circumstances with no exceptions and treating it as homicide. And uh, we saw these proposals pop up in state uh, legislatures already this uh, session in places like South Carolina. Um, You know, in social media, this is absolutely the drive in in terms of um, evangelical anti-choice influencers and uh, live action. The Lila Rose group is absolutely pushing this rhetoric with their friends 
framing of equality begins in the womb and this effort to rewrite the 14th Amendment to recognize federal fetal personhood, which would not only ban abortion um, nationwide, but recognize, you know, uh, life beginning at conception uh, that invalidates and criminalizes a lot of assisted reproductive technologies like IVF that, you know, um, gets into efforts to then criminalize access to contraception. So absolutely, I'm terrified of it, John, but I also see it as a political reality that the left and Democrats are going to have to grapple with because the right is intent on it. Imani? Yeah, absolutely. And you saw we saw I mean, we've seen for decades the the ways in which that they are willing to throw people in prison using laws that were not intended to ensnare pregnant people and throw them in prison. I'm thinking particularly about these chemical endangerment statues, right? Like they're Alabama, for example. I mean, it seems like it's always in Alabama. They had a chemical endangerment statute that was intended to get at the scourge of meth labs in the mid 2000s. And so what did they do? They started essentially categorizing a womb as a meth lab. So if a person had taken methamphetamines, whether they were addicted or not, that their womb was considered a meth lab. The fetus was considered a child that was in the meth lab and they were going after pregnant women, even though the Alabama legislature specifically said that is not what this law is for. And even though the Alabama legislature, they tried to amend it to make it so that it would apply to pregnant people and failed. But when you have judges who are willing to go beyond what the law does, then that's what they're going to do. They did the same thing in Indiana with Pervy Patel, right? There was no reason for Pervy Patel to be sentenced to something like 40 years in prison on contradicting charges. On one charge, she killed a fetus. On one charge, the fetus had to be alive. It didn't matter. They were intent on throwing her in prison. So, I mean, we're, what we're going to see. And then remember Liz Herrera? She was oh, yeah. that woman in Texas where Texas one. was like, yeah, you took medication abortion. We're throwing you in jail. And then like a day later, like, wait a minute. We don't even have a law that says that's illegal. So they had to let her out of jail. But it was basically a trial balloon, right, to see how outraged people were going to get by throwing people in prison for having bad pregnancy outcomes. Exactly. And I think what's interesting about the the post row movement in this regard is that, you know, a lot of the people, you know, you're Kristen Hawkins, right? She's the president for Student for Life. A lot of these young women, I mean, she still as diehard and, and, and bananas as ever, but a lot of these people who were marching for life when they were 17, 18, 19 years old, not not necessarily knowing what they were marching for, they're now in their 30s, their early 30s, and maybe they're trying to get pregnant. And maybe when they get pregnant, they have a bad pregnancy outcome and they end up bleeding out on a gurney in a hospital. And that's an actual reality that is happening to people. But what the anti-choicers don't want you to know is they don't want you to know that that's happening. And if you know that that's yeah. happening, they want to make you think that it's the doctor's fault. It's not the fault. It's not their fault the anti-choicers fault it's not the legislator legislature's fault for writing crappy laws it's people in the media like jess and me who are telling who are accurately reporting what's going on we're somehow fear-mongering or doctors who are having to confer with hospital administrators and lawyers before treating a patient well they're 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 abrogating their duty somehow because really they know better they should be able to treat these people but they can't treat these people because the laws are vague and the laws right. are intent on putting these people in jail. So if you treat one person and you end up in jail, all the rest of the patients that need you can't get treatment. So they are really intent on doing the bad thing, putting people in prison, imposing national bans while hiding behind you know, a curtain and saying, we're not doing that. What are you talking about? You're fear mongering. You're crazy. And it's really this sort of national effort at gaslighting to make it seem as if the people like Jess and I, who are telling the truth, who are actually telling you what's going on, we're out of our minds. You know, we're definitely completely just trying to scare people. And that's just, ugh, it's annoying. I want to say, this is this is why I love your podcast. This is why I listen to Boom Lawyered, because I'm going to say, just as a side note to our listeners, if, if you're looking for the kind of podcast you can listen to on those mornings when you're feeling gaslit and overwhelmed and you just can't stand the news anymore, I'm telling you, every time I play you guys, I always listen in the mornings and you get me fired up and I'm able to do my job and get through the day because it's not about anger. It's about outrage and it's about turning it into positive action. And I, I want to ask about Mifepristone because I don't think they were the right wing was as prepared for their Mifepristone bans as they were prepared for their trigger laws and their bounty hunter laws and their repealing Roe v. Wade. We're only now beginning to realize that we are looking at a potential America where conceivably Americans male can be rifled through 
by unelected bureaucrats looking for drugs that have been legal and safe for over 20 years. Does it seem like they they really didn't think through the Mifepristone ban as well as they thought through everything else? Because I think this has the potential to be much messier for the right wing. Yeah, I I mean, it certainly does. I think, um, you know, certain elements probably don't care. I think the part that they didn't truly think through was the reaction from big pharma and the business interests in the idea that um, actually the Food and Drug Administration and the administrative state generally Functions pretty okay in this country. Like, can it be fixed? Sure. Are they rushing drugs to market the way in which um, has been characterized in the legal attacks on Mifepristone? And have they really thought through, you know, what it means to reanimate the Comstock Act? You know, this Victorian era (laughs) anti-smut law um, and and truly what that means? Because the oh, I mean, you know, the ultimate irony is the only way you effectively enforce the Comstock Act is through some like national massive police presence, right? Like you need an an anti-smut vice squad fully at the national <laughs> level like we used to oh, have. Oh, give them ideas, Jessica. Right? Give, like, them, give them the idea. Put the idea in their head, Jess. Keep talking that way, yeah. <laughs> but I'm, ju- I'm just saying like, you know, it's this massive attack on the on the administrative state that requires a massive administrative state to enforce. These folks don't even seem to understand the irony in their own litigation there. So but it's wildly dangerous. I mean, you know, one of the effects of the Mifepristone lawsuit is not just a possible national uh, ban on medication abortion or, you know, rolling it back to um, restrictions from the Clinton administration. But basically anything in an abortion clinic gets mailed at some point. Right. Like surgical tubing um, envelopes like you name it to run a clinic. You need to mail supplies through the the, uh, U.S. mail, FedEx, all of that stuff. So there is the possibility that a very broad reading of that can shut down or gum up commerce around clinics in such a way that care becomes even more catastrophized than it already is. Well, we're looking at a couple of other anniversaries happening right now. One of them, of course, was an anniversary that was a few weeks ago, but it was the leaking of the Alito majority opinion in the Dobbs decision. And I just want to briefly ask you guys about that, because that was the biggest story in the world one summer ago. And of course, uh, John Roberts swore <laughs> like OJ promising to find the real killers on the golf courses of L.A. John Roberts swore. <laughs> That he would get to the bottom of it. Yeah. Even though at the time we all pretty much knew it was probably leaked by a conservative source to lock in the vote. Uh, Mysteriously, that priority, that urgency has left John Roberts now. And I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on that forgotten piece of history of this story. I mean, there's a reason Jess and I call him Sammy the Leak. (laughs) <laughs> like it's just he leaked that opinion himself. He did it. Give he me did a it. Break already. Yeah. Like he he absolutely did it. And especially we found out a couple of months after it was maybe four or five six months ago we found out that going as far back as Hobby Lobby, Alito was leaking a leaking drafts of Hobby Lobby That's to right. stakeholders on the right to enable them to to start their sort of PR response. Once the court decided that they weren't they were going to allow a for profit corporation to avoid its obligations under the ACA when it came to providing birth control insurance. So, you know, this idea that, uh, oh, well, I would never. I mean, he was like a Southern, but I do declare me making an opinion. Well, I never. I mean, I just I can't. And it was so obvious. It's, they were trying to claim that it was a liberal. It would have made no sense. For made it to be no liberal. First sense. of all, it wasn't going to be any of the clerks. Wouldn't have been any of the clerks for any of the women because all of those clerks understand how the women just can't operate in the same way that the men do, right? That's right. And it wouldn't have been Breyer because he was already on his way out with Jackson coming in at the helm. So it's like, of course it wasn't a liberal. It was absolutely Sam Alito. It was just so frustrating to have to deal with that nonsense. And then just the scandals in the over the past five or six months. I mean, there needs to be 
They need to be beholden to some sort of rule of ethics the way everybody else is. The fact that these nine justices, the fact that there are people who wake up this month wondering if their rights are going to be taken away by nine justices, about half of whom have some ties to a Nazi memorabilia enthusiast, that is very concerning to me, right? This heart, it's not even the Roberts Court anymore. It's the Harlan Crow Court. Thank and they are you. Deciding whether or not. Black people can have their race considered when in, uh, being admitted to schools, whether or not LGBT people who might want to make wedding websites someday just want to ask the court for an advisory opinion telling her she doesn't have to make wedding websites, even though she doesn't make wedding websites at all. I mean, it is it's unconscionable the way this court is being run right now. And maybe John Roberts's opinions over the last couple of weeks have been in response to that. I don't That's know. Right. It's it's possible, although maybe not likely, given that these opinions, as Jess always says, these opinions take a long time to write. So it might not be a backlash to these scandals. But you have to remember, these scandals have been going on for 12 months now. And John Roberts is this guy who was like, I'm going to legitimize the court. And what has he done? He's overseeing the most hyper-partisan court in modern history. So, I think you're exactly right. I don't I think, know. I think he's, yeah, I think he's voting for his biographer at this point. That's it. Right? Yeah, like, the right. outcome doesn't matter. His, his votes <laughs> rarely right. change the outcome, but it garners him a bunch of good press. So we can be like, you know what? That John Roberts, he's not so bad after all. He's guys. not so bad. You're yeah, so right. Crazy. No, I, I think John Roberts and Mitch McConnell are the only Republicans in D.C. with their eyes on the history books and not on the next couple of weeks. And John Roberts's main focus in his life is his legacy. His main focus in being the swing vote was his legacy, and everything he does is a way to put more shine on John Roberts, this spoiled aristocrat with no appreciation of his own privilege, who's never lived like a normal person and has no appreciation of the suffering his rulings cause. Uh, Yeah, next to Clarence Thomas, you're very likable. Also, this is the one-year anniversary of Clarence Thomas telling everybody... It's the one-year anniversary of Clarence Thomas telling everybody they're not going to be satisfied with just taking these rights away from women. Clarence Thomas came out and said that they were going to go after marriage equality. They were going Mm -hmm. to go after birth control. And they really are, aren't they? I mean, we should still be afraid, be very afraid. Oh, yeah, they're absolutely. going after all of those things and just this push against trans people. We're going to see that at the court real soon. And that's going to be... I mean, I, I think that I think the fact that they have moved so quickly to targeting trans people demonstrates how much of a loss the abortion cause was for them. Right. Once they won and they overturned Roe, they had to train their sights on some other group of people in order to keep the quote unquote rubes in line. Right. They're taking money out of people's pockets while screaming about trans people being groomers and how they're trying to come for your family. None of that is true, but they got to make sure that people are scared of something. Otherwise, they'll start thinking about, wait a second, why why do I have to work two jobs to put food on my family's table? You know, they don't right. want to start thinking about yeah. those things. So. But that's right. the, but that, but so obvious what they're doing. But that's the racket, and that's why they're so backwards, because by repealing Roe, they guaranteed everybody was going to show up to vote. Young people, people who have not been engaged politically, a huge turnout, so much more civic engagement. By beating up on an oppressed minority, a minority that's a minority within every minorities, they're only guaranteeing their own core base is still going to show up. And that wasn't enough in 18, wasn't enough in 20, wasn't enough in 22. I would be most remiss if I didn't point out that there have been lots of things to be inspired by. And last year alone, the Guttmacher Institute found that uh, across the nation, lawmakers introduced 369 bills to protect access to abortion and passed 77 of these bills across 18 states. There were nearly 200 more abortion restrictions introduced last year than abortion bans, but the states passed 27 more protections than restrictions for abortion rights last year. So I'm curious, what is giving both of you hope? What is turning you on and, and inspiring you and making you think that it's this is a ride worth sticking on and not checking out? I mean, Imani already talked about um, some of the state battles and the ways in which Gen Z has been turning out, not just the fact that they are turning out, but they are that they are turning out and that the political opposition is grounded and rooted in joy. I think that's really important because these attacks on our bodies are part of the you know sort of sweeping fascism that is coming across this country and fascists hate joy. 
So be joyful in your opposition. <laughs> I think that I think that's really important. Um, you know, even pride. Dare, if, dare if I say pride for you to do so. Yeah, exactly. You know, so so I do think that there is that. And what I will say is that the lawmakers and, you know, the advocates in states that have moved to expand access seem to really understand what the fight is, because these bills are not just a restore row bill. They are bills like, for example, the Reproductive Health Equity Act in Colorado affirmatively uh, bats away at any kind of fetal personhood affirmatively protects contraceptive access as a constitutional right in ways that go um, and like deeply codify those uh, constitutional protections from Griswold, for example. So the state lawmakers and what's happening in Michigan, for example, is is really inspiring in that sense. So the idea that the state lawmakers um, who are moving understand that it's a different battle to be had at this point, I think is is a good sign as we look to build something better than what we had with Roe. I agree with everything she said. <laughs> I don't really have anything to add. It's just the joy, the kids, the kids are all right. The kids are all right. And the kids are going to take over and they're going to let me take a nap. And that's what I really like. About it. <laughs> I just want to thank the two of you. Honestly, uh, every time I get outraged and gaslit, your podcast has helped me through. And I want to recommend to everyone thank to you. subscribe to Boom Lawyered because it is the jolt of caffeine and justice that will get you through your day. Amani Gandhi is senior editor of law and policy for Rewire News Group. Jessica Mason Piclo is senior VP and executive editor for Rewire News Group. Together, they co-host the Boom Lawyered podcast. And I thank you all so much. There have been so many times that you guys have just given my soul the jolt of adrenaline and needed to keep on fighting over the last year. And I can't wait to see what you do next. You all make me proud to be an American. And thank you for joining us on Sirius XM. Oh, thank you. Thanks, John. <laughs> Thanks very thank much, John. Yeah. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for what you do. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Hey, everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. And welcome back. I'm John saying This is SiriusXM Progress. It's hard to believe it's sure. been almost 45 years since November 78 when the police released one of the greatest debut albums of all time, Outlandish Amour, which featured songs you might have heard of, including Can't Stand Losing You and Roxanne. Uh, Sting. Andy on guitar and, of course, Stuart Copeland on drums made music that still sounds amazing and repulsive to this day. Now, Mr. Stuart Copeland has continued to push his own musical boundaries. He's written many pieces of ballet, opera, orchestral music. He's composed soundtracks for films from Coppola's Rumblefish to Oliver Stone's Wall Street and talk radio. 
I love the soundtrack to talk radio. My God, I still play it. He formed the bands Animal Logic and Oysterhead and Gizmodrome. And recently his record with Ricky Kedge, Divine Tides, won the Grammy for Best New Age Album. So Stuart Copeland, you might recall, released a film called Everyone Stares, The Police Inside Out, which is a movie he created out of Super 8 footage in the band's early days. And it featured rearranged or deranged versions of the band's song as the score. That has now led to one of the best albums of the year, Police Deranged for Orchestra, combining his rearrangements with a symphony orchestra and an all-star rock band, including our friend Rusty Anderson. It's great. It's melodic and tight. It's wildly experimental, and it reinvents the songs while never losing sight of the originals. What a pleasure to welcome seven-time Grammy-winning composer, Mr. Stuart Copeland, Sirius XM. Gosh, dang, that's such a heck of an introduction. I can't wait to hear myself speak. I tell you, it's a lot to get to, but I want to set it up right, because I, I, I find it amazing that you uncovering boxes of Super 8 footage you shot on the road with the band somehow led to this incredible symphonic album. I mean, can you can you walk us through how that happened? Well, I shot this stuff back in the day on a Super 8 camera, and I had these wonderful little three-and-a-half-minute films on Super 8, but there's no negative. And so, you know, they're for domestic use, so you stick them together. And editing involves shaving off one bit, and then the opposite on the other one, then you drop a little bit of glue, and then you flip it over, and you stick it. You know, that's every edit takes that, and you can't un- – there's no undo. And every time you're looking at it, you're scratching it. So they went back into shoeboxes, and I forgot about them for, I don't know, 20 years, something like that. And then one day, someone invented computers. And then it became possible to digitize <laughs> all that footage, and I could edit all day, which I did. Basically, the home movie from hell, because I didn't have any establishing shots. I didn't, you know, I'm not a documentary. I was a rock star on the road with a camera in front of my face. And I got some very cool stuff, but not the fundamental materials to make a proper documentary. So it was kind of a home movie. Yeah. But my buddy Les Claypool said, hey, dude, send that off to Sundance. So I did. I applied right there when he was on the phone, paid my $35. And hey, <laughs> the night before Thanksgiving, Sundance called up and said, hey, we'd like you to bring your movie to Sundance. And then my home movie from hell became an actual movie. And the movie needed a score, right? Absolutely. And I'm glad you explained all that, that the score was messed up police music, uh, stuff from improvisations on stage, from uh, lost uh, adventures in the studio, because the score had to be something different from the original version. So that's where I came up with these derangements. And they were just too good to leave confined to a movie score. And you decided, wow, this deserves live performance. This deserves an album. Well, now there's another strand to this tale, which is that um, I've been playing shows with with orchestra for decades now, a, a, a byproduct of my years before the mast as a hired gun film composer was <laughs> getting a forced, a forced education in orchestra and developing a deep love of this amazing, powerful instrument, the, the symphonic orchestra. And so I've been playing these shows. And that's what made me, you know, it was, I dropped the occasional obscure police song, Miss Gridenko, Darkness, into right. the into those shows. And they have such an impact that somebody suggested, how about you play some hits? And I said, no, 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 no. Okay, yes. And uh, as soon as I got on board with that, I spent a whole summer orchestrating this stuff and delving deep into this material and discovering that that Andy Summers you know, damn that guy. You know, yeah. I mean, most guitarists can get an amp that goes to 11. Andy's <laughs> fingers go to 12. And uh, also with my nose rubbed deep in the lyrics, I never listened to the lyrics before. I'm a drummer. I bang stuff. You know, all I see is the back of the singer's head. And getting into these arrangements, I discovered that, you know, and don't tell Sting I said this, but the guy's a heck of a songwriter. Mm-hmm. I mean, this year already, we've seen you 2 release uh, an album of them re-recording their songs. Bob Dylan just did it with uh, with Shadow Kingdom. And and when when Dylan put out his Sinatra record a couple years back, he said they weren't covering the songs. They were uncovering the songs. And now that you have joined those two as like the three great artists going back and recreating songs from the catalog, I have to say it seems incredibly healthy. 
if you're not trying to recreate an old thing, but create something new out of the work you already have? Well, a song is a creation that has its own life. Um, there's the band version that you originally heard, but the song itself and every songwriter feels the sense of pride in what they wrote, regardless of the performance of it. And so that song is like a little toy boat you put out on the lake and you watch it sail away and it has its own life, its own adventures. It, the song has a career. And so songwriters like it when their songs have such a career. For the U2 guys and for Bob Dylan, those gems that they wrote are there and gosh, it'd be fun to do this with them or that with them. And I completely understand the philosophy. You know, I'm, you know, Edge was talking about it and, you know, his wife has a gallery and we were chatting about this upcoming record at the time. And it was interesting. I think the feeling was that you two, and in my case as well, we're confident that we're moving forward. And if you're confident that you're moving forward, you're not afraid to look back, which is what in all these cases is what we're doing. Yeah, absolutely. But I find it amazing how you made these songs sound new again. And yeah, it made me look at Sting's lyrics and it made me look at the melody that Andy Summers could create in a whole new way. But for oh, me, yeah. I'm fascinated by by you taking what you do and transposing it and creating something new with an orchestra. For the lay people out there, I mean, what can you do as a drummer with an orchestra that you can't do with a three-piece rock band? Well, everything below the dynamic level of eight is available. The vocabulary of the drum set is <laughs> way wider. You know, in a rock band, you, you, the, the drummer has a dynamic range from 8 to 12. You know, guitarists go up to 11. Drummers go to 12, okay? Uh, but in an orchestra world, anything above 8, and you kill the orchestra. Because even though the orchestra sounds magnificent and huge and dramatic and powerful in the room, they're actually, it's an audio illusion because they're not even close to as loud as a rock band with a couple of Fender Twins on stage. Then my yeah. instrument, the drums, is designed to compete with huge electronic amplification. So when I sit down with an acoustic orchestra, those little violins only like 12 inches long, made out of wood, uh, and they haven't got no humbuckers on them. Uh, so I've had to adjust my technique to make available, again, all those things, those roughs, drags, finesse, persnickety cool stuff that I learned as a kid, but have no place in rock and roll because you just can't hear them now yeah. you can hear them so that the drums have a much wider vocabulary and gosh they certainly sound nice when i'm not trying to kill them i mean i know you've always been such an experimenter and you've always been someone to adopt new technology for music but i i i get that you had to really redesign the way you play can you explain to me what quiet symbols are well i've had to get quiet symbols in it, fact it they sounds have like a them uh -huh. Yes, right. Well, I mean, I hit a big rock crash, a big rude, big pasty rude. I lose the next four bars of my carefully honed orchestration. So two things. One is a lot of my crash cymbals are, are small and have holes in it. So they don't go crash. They go crash. And but sometimes you want a longer thing, but without obliterating everything. So I've learned how to hit my crash cymbals on the top. Ting rather than on the edge, crash. And that ting actually has a lot more resonance, a lot more overtones, a lot more sex appeal than the crash. So uh, it means that I have to raise my arms and come down on the cymbal and tap it in the middle of the cymbal, ting, rather than on the edge of the cymbal, crash. Right, right. These are the great mysteries of drumming arts, you know, the mysteries revealed for your listeners that they've no, always pondered. Hey, listen, no, but I've, I've, I've pondered it because I, I find the whole craft fascinating. I mean, I, I guess I have to ask you a lot of really conventional songwriting questions. Were you hearing these orchestrations in your head or parts of them in your head? Or was it a matter of sitting down and composing and figuring out parts of the work as you move through it? I've always heard those orchestral parts in my head dating back to when I was seven years old. I was raised to be a jazz musician by my father, which is why I'm pretty much immune to this stuff. But meanwhile, my mother was listening to 20th century orchestral music, Stravinsky, Ravel, Debussy, Carl Orff, Aaron Copeland, my adopted uncle. And 
that had more of an emotional effect on me so that when I turned 16 and Jimi Hendrix appeared and that just blew everything out of the waters, A, I'm 16, B, Jimi Hendrix is, I mean, come on, it's Jimi Hendrix and Mitch Mitchell, oh my gosh, that just set me off on a whole new journey. However, walking down the street, which is when I walk down the street, music gushes through my head, unbidden, it just happens. When I arrive at the bus stop, the music stops. So I'd walk around in circles to keep the music going. And that music was comprised of Rites of Spring by Stravinsky in my left brain sphere. And on the right lobe is Jimi Hendrix. And so I've always like heaven. heard heaven. rock music through a, through a, a filter of orchestra, of, of symphony. Well, then let me ask about the song selection, because I, I, as much as I love the arrangements, I love the songs you chose to arrange. Tea in the Sahara is just gorgeous here. And I'm curious, what was it that made you decide this song would work uh, or this song wouldn't? And, and were there songs you wanted to try that just didn't work? Well, the selection sort of came from what I needed to score the movie, to score the Super 8 movie. And that determined what I reached for. And I wasn't thinking of playing the hits. I was thinking, what do I need for this scene? Right. And so that's how Tea in the Sahara got in there. And Murder by Numbers, which, by the way, wasn't even, wasn't a hit. It wasn't even yeah. on an album. It's a very, it was a B-side. But when we play that song live, Murder by Numbers, it rocks the house every time. Somehow, well, that was the police song that kind of got away or something. But there's... You know, I, at first, I didn't even want to do Every Breath You Take because it's so obvious and it's not one of the most exciting parts for me to play live. And But then, wait a minute, wait a minute, what are we doing here? They're going to come after me with pitchforks if I don't do Every Breath You Take. So how did you go about doing it? I, I, I heard that that one you relied well, on that the conductor helping you out. a bit. Yeah, how, how did that work? I, I, well, I'd done all the orchestrations my gosh darn self, put every tenuto, every accent, all the articulations, you know, all the orchestration stuff, or as I call it, putting the Italian on the page, you know, a lot of it's in Italian for some reason. But when I realized I got to do every breath, I'd kind of burnt out of the mission. So I farmed that one out to Craig Stewart Garfinkel mm. and his wife, Emer Noon, who's a conductor, uh, who will actually conducts this piece i'll be she'll be conducting this piece in luxembourg next week and so they did an arrangement of every breath you take and it's it's gorgeous and i have to say i'm one of those people that was a huge fan of don't stand so close to me 86 i loved how really you guys, you're oh, very rare i love not only did i love it i love the video you made i loved the sound you guys had on that record and i was one of the people who was really mad we never got to hear a whole album of it but i i gotta say I think I like this new version better than the original as well. Uh, it's almost like a, you know? it's two different keys fighting it out for supremacy in this arrangement. Well, you've nailed it because that's exactly what it is. The two is different really? versions back in the day, uh -huh. the two different versions were the 86 version was a different key from the original. And so in my version, I've kind of combined both keys and elements from both versions. And uh, I am absolutely trembling with uh, the honor that you have bestowed upon my <laughs> narrow shoulders um, that you prefer my humble version rather than either of the police legends. No, it's, dy it's dynamite. And to me, it's amazing that an orchestra can somehow sound looser and more freeform than a three-man rock band. That's one of the real achievements of this record for me. But well, I, they're I, not. They, they they're, might sound that way, but they are absolutely obeying the page every nuance is on the page and that's what makes it fun for me to play with since i know exactly where they're going to be i can take a left i can go well, on an adventure i'll tell I'll, I'll see you guys in eight bars but uh, that's what i, I love exactly where they're going to be because the discipline is there well, the you drums can have are very that playfulness. loose but the orchestra is absolutely on the money we're going to take a very quick break we'll be right back after this okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey all, Glenn Kirshner here. Friends, I hope you'll join me on my audio podcast, Justice Matters. We talk about not only the legal issues of the day, but we also talk about the need to reform ethics in our government. Here's one example, the oath of office. You know the one. I do solemnly swear to support and defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Let's add 22 words to that oath. Quote, and I will promptly report any instances of crime and or corruption by government officials and employees of which I become aware. Friends, our democracy is worth fighting for. Join us in this fight, because justice matters. Look for Justice Matters wherever you ordinarily find your podcasts. So I know that at one point you had a guy come to actually help you with the, I guess, putting it down on the page correctly. How do you find the right language to convey everything the song needed? Because I guess at a rock band, you have the notes, you have the lyrics, but for an orchestra, you've got to have every single nuance and how to play each note. That's that's right. Well, guitarists and rock musicians of the ear, they're not looking at a page. They're staring off into space. And a big part of what they do is improvisation. You tell them the basic chords and might sing the riff to da 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 but they do their own thing with it to a large degree. The orcs do not. They obey the page because they know this violin player over here, if she obeys her page, the clarinetist 30 feet away obeys his or her page, they're both going to be the mighty Chicago Symphony. And that's how you get to be a fantastic, it's a corporate identity, yeah. uh, which derives from obeying the page. And it, it's the page. quite amazing that e- even within that, the different orchestras have different personalities. Uh, even though they're all putting exactly what they're reading, you know, the Chicago Symphony has a different atmosphere from the Vancouver Symphony. Maybe because the Vancouver just has an incredible brass section and they really shine. Whereas you know, the Atlanta has really incredible strings or something. But that's even what, amazing. What's more... The orchestra do have their own personalities. Well, sure. But like, you know, we, we hear the legends of Chuck Berry in his later years, how he, he would tour around and go to the college and they'd, he'd tell him, you got to have two kids who can play my songs on guitar. He'd meet them a few hours before the show and they would just belt it out with a band he had just met. I think about you traveling to work with these orchestras and what you get one rehearsal with these people a couple of hours before you've got to play it live. That's right. I think about Chuck Berry a lot. When I pull into Nashville, the Nashville Symphony are going to kill it. I know that. When I pull into, I'm not going to mention any podunk towns. When I pull into podunk, the podunk Philharmonic Orchestra, um, it's it's that's when I feel like Chuck Berry pulling into town and hiring the local high school band. <laughs> but I'm sorry, you know, I'm, writing, uh, I'm writing down podunk Symphony Orchestra to be uh, my next band name. I love it. <laughs> Really, yeah. But I mean, it's it's close enough and they, they might waver a little bit here. But, you know, the singers sing those songs. I'm banging stuff, doing my thing. And Armand and Rusty are holding it together. So we survive. Yeah. And by, and Rusty, by the way, you mean... you've been very generous in your story about Chuck. I've known people who played with 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 did that Chuck Berry gig and they didn't get a meeting beforehand. They met him on stage. OK, you all know Maybelline, right? Two, three, four. That's what Springsteen said happened to him in college when he played back up for Chuck. I think that's who we're talking about. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned Armand and Rusty. Rusty is, of course, our, our friend Rusty Anderson. He's done this show a bunch. But our, our Armand Zabaleco, you've worked with for years. And anybody who's enjoyed Paul Simon's work has probably enjoyed his work. Um, the, the, the band sounds great with the orchestra. But I've got to ask you about your vocalists. You have these three women who just have made me say sting who for the last week. And I'm curious how you cast your vocalists and what the experience was like bringing them up to speed with where you needed the, uh, the songs to be. Well, um, Ashley 
uh, Tamar Davis, uh, Carmel Helene, and Amy Keys are three of the top singers here in Los Angeles. Um, they've played on many, 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 many records as backing singers. And backing singers need more skill and discipline than lead singers because the lead singer can go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, but the backing singers need to be right on the money. Uh, but in this case, I exhorted them. I pushed them, step forward into the spotlight, grab it and run with it. And boy, did they. With such charisma, they really have delivered. In fact, they've turned me on to a whole new genre that I missed growing up. I totally missed R&B as a kid. I was into Jimi Hendrix. Uh, and R&B just seemed kind of too mainstream. But man, I'm now a huge fan of the Chiffons, the Ronettes, and, uh, you know, and the Supremes. In fact, yeah. the record ends up sounding sort of like Police Deranged for Orchestra sung by the Supremes. <laughs> Well, I mean, I would agree with that. And I also, since you mentioned Hendrix, I, I love your praise of Mitch Mitchell, who I love very much. But I, I always thought Band of Gypsies influenced you as well, where where Hendrix began really yes. exploding his own style and pushing to new areas. Yeah, I love Band of Gypsies, even though I'm intensely loyal to Mitch Mitchell, who's at the top of my tree. Him and Buddy are at the top of my list. But, I, you know, I liked Band of Gypsies as well as just a different version with Buddy Miles keeping it real simple, but that worked too. So there's different ways to skin the cat. Absolutely. You're um, releasing a, a new book this fall, Stuart Copeland's Police Diaries, which I'm excited about. Can you give us any kind of preview? It seems like it's a very detailed memoir. Oh, yes. It's, it's a coffee table book, which reproduces the actual pages of my diaries, where I note how much we got paid, how many people showed up, how well we did. And I've got the receipt for the truck and the and the PA and all this stuff. And it's very visual with my crap handwriting and even dodgier accounts. Uh, some, of the, some of the arithmetic is a little shifty. And also contemporaneous diatribes. I kept, as well as the, 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 the diary of what happened every day, I also kept a journal of just where I wrote my darkest thoughts, you know, grievance nurturing and, and other extrapolations. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's modern commentary with the wisdom of hindsight commenting on all of it. And it's an interesting story because it's the starving years. Later yeah. on, when we start to really grow, we were playing arena after arena, and it's kind of repetitive. But those early years, the starving years, when we were struggling, Sting and I were getting nowhere. And we didn't have Roxanne, Message in a Bottle, or any of those songs because Sting had not yet started writing Right. The guitarist was not capable of playing anything that he would write. And yet we stuck together and we were in such a pocket. We did have just this incredible pocket. The two of us lit each other up and we were kind of codependent. And that kept us together through thick and th well, there was no thick. It was all thin. Yeah. And uh, until we ran into Andy Summers. You know, I've always wanted to ask you about something in uh, I think it was 94 the police released a four disc box set, um, which was great, had all the, you know, all the songs and, and a lot of uh, B-sides. But it also had incredible liner notes and a very detailed booklet with interviews of all three of you. And I always felt that that interview book and that box set was the closest we came to getting um, an autobiography of the band. Because you guys really, really didn't hold back in your feelings at the time. And I'm curious how you view that part of, uh, of well, our feelings are mellower now, yeah. uh, uh, mellowed by wisdom and hindsight. And we struggled. We fought. You know, um, it was a struggle. The I've, I've said a million times that the police was like a Prada suit made out of razor blades. Yeah. Um, and we were very happy with the result in hindsight. But at the time, we were at each other's throats for absolutely honorable reasons. Um, we just grew in different directions even while we were in the band together and we just clashed i mean we make music for different reasons it turns out music has different function in our lives we make music for different reasons and in a different way for me i like banging stuff and burning down the house and for old doris for sing stingo he uh he's just singing his beautiful songs and that's why isn't that enough? Just a beautiful song with an incredible lyric, but he's got World War Three going on over his left shoulder. Yeah. Drives him nuts. 
you know, I, I know that you have to spend a lot of your life being graceful and patient with trifling fool interviewers reading questions off of note cards, asking you reunion questions that are so obnoxious. And I, I just want to say, oh, I got a flip answer for that. You go ahead. That? Go ahead. Ask me about the reunion. No, I don't give a shit about the reunion. I like this stuff so much. I don't want a reunion. <laughs> My whole point is like, you know, that's the way I felt about Robert Plant's last couple of records or David Crosby's last few records. Who needs a oh, reunion yeah. when you're putting out new stuff that's as dynamic as this and really bringing the music to life so much more than if you were just trying to recreate an album sound on stage in the Enormo Dome somewhere? Well, it turns out that we are doing the reunion without the other two guys uh andy's down at, andy's down in brazil playing these songs he's got an incredible band down there his drummer yeah. joao baron is a good friend of mine that's a heck of a band i would go see that band and uh, old stingo's doing them as well that's and right. th- we've gagged amongst ourselves how much fun it is to play roxanne without those other two assholes <laughs> But now there's another album coming that I want to ask you about before I, I release you to your life, which is Police Beyond Borders, which I'm, I'm oh my thrilled. Goodness. The, the Soweto Gospel right Choir is on this. Date. We, play Soweto so Gospel, we, we play Soweto Gospel. We play Soweto Gospel Choir's duet with you, too, as our intro music sometimes on this show. So I was so thrilled to hear about this collaboration. Can you tell us a bit about it? Because this sounds like a record that could heal the world. Well, today is the great day where... Uh, Police Deranged for Orchestra is released unto the adoring masses uh, who deserve this record. Um, (laughs) Meanwhile, I'm hatching with my buddy Ricky Cage, with whom we won that Grammy this year and the previous year as well. We're doing the global version of it. Imagine, if you will, every breath you take in Zulu. We have, you know, the Soweto Gospel Choir, the Mazanzis. We have Indian artists. Uh, you know, we this this. Imagine all these songs in Urdu, Tamil, Zulu, Armenian, Chinese. Tea in the Sahara in Chinese kicks ass. By the way, <laughs> I can't wait to hear it, Stuart Copeland. I've yeah, wanted still to get you. Process. We're still making that record. Well, I'm dying to hear it. Listen, I have dreamed of having you on this show since I first took this gig, and I want to thank you so much for joining us. For those listening on the radio, I just oh, wanted sure. to say, for the visual benefit, Stuart Copeland has done this entire interview walking in a in a circle through his home, and I've really appreciated the architecture tour. It's been amazing to watch while we talk. Oh, great. Well, uh, like when I walk along, music happens when I'm walking and stops when I stop walking. I guess that works for talking as well. It really does. It's good to it, talk while walking. You remind me of Eric Bogosian in uh, Talk Radio, uh, which you scored. He did the same thing. This new record is a gem, and I want to thank you for making it. The record, again, is called Police Deranged for Orchestra. It will make you feel like you're hearing these songs for the first time. I don't know how you did it. I can't wait to hear what you do next, and thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for listening. Thank you. Have a great one. Peace. Peace.